study of Isaiah. This is the second to the last week of the Christmas study. And as a reminder, Christmas is not over, contrary to what you might have heard. Just checking to make sure. Uh, Christmas is not over. Excuse me, 17 weeks away. Uh, so um, the, the beauty of being a liturgical people, um, a people that enjoy the, the, the calendar and allow God to orient time for us, is that we embrace the, the waiting and the anticipation of Advent according to that, and then the 12 days of what is called Christmastide. In fact, it's interesting, that's where the term, the Christmas season, came from. So we think the Christmas season is like Thanksgiving until Christmas. That's really not. Thanksgiving, or excuse me, Christmas season is a season on the calendar, just like Advent season means a space of time. So literally, Christian, uh, the Christian calendar says the 12 days of Christmas tide or Christmas season is how we celebrate. So that's what we're doing. So um, you should come to our house. Not that you have to do this, but if you need to and if you don't. Um, but if you come to, to our house, um, you'll find the Christmas tree still up. Um, we still light it every day. And we, because Christmas isn't over. And, uh, and so we, um, what, the, what the church calls us is that the event of Jesus, the theosis of Jesus coming into humanity is such a big deal that you can't fit the part of Jesus So uh, that culminates this coming Sunday with uh, Epiphany. Um, now, if you don't know who Epiphany is, um, first of all, uh, Epiphany is that um, girl that sang that song back in the 80s, running just as fast as you can and holding on to Jesus. Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany is the idea that it, uh, you've heard, maybe you've been around somebody and they've said, well, I just had another Epiphany. Um, it's an awakening, uh, uh, becoming alert to something, becoming uh, um, uh, an idea that comes into your mind. An awakening uh, is, is probably the best way to say it. Well, this Sunday is what the church calls Epiphany. And um, so we'll talk about that. And this, I think uh, this Sunday's message is going to be titled Partying with Jesus. Um, so it's going to be a really, really, really fun time. Um, and I'm thankful for that so, and I can't make a better excuse for the party than Jesus was awake at noon tonight. Uh, so, Amber, would you mind coming and helping me pastor out tonight? Tonight, we're going to be looking at another element of Christmas. What Christmas means for us. What Christmas meant at the time. And in fact, if you think about it, uh, we've, we've really addressed a lot in just... Um, so far these nine or so days, um, we've talked about how that Jesus in um, Christmas, we spoke early on about how that is something that actually changes and shifts us into being a people of joy, into being a people of peace. Um, we talked about what it looks like when um, the joy to the world comes, when peace comes, um, Sunday for me was probably one of the most unique messages I've ever taught because um, by the standards by which I've been raised, it sounds more political than it does scriptural. The problem is, though, not the message. The problem is that we've been trained that Jesus, we've been trained that we want the Bible to inform our politics. And we do that in a way that says we want non-Christians to live under Christian law. That's a really bizarre thing to think of in the first place, isn't it? But the other thing we've done, somehow in the process of that, we've divorced Jesus from the biblical way to live. And what I've actually found, as I've been praying this out, most non-Christians don't want anything to do with our scriptural politics. But most of them want everything to do with our Jesus politics. 
scriptural politics tries to tell them who can get married and who can't. Our Jesus politics would say, let me run to the edges for the people who don't want to. See, James uh, says it, um, it's mentioned several other times, the following language, but essentially that true religion is what? Caring for the widow and the orphan. So tonight we're going to look at um, a, a, a really unique um, St. Patrick's anyway, um, and we're going to start it uh, a little weird because tonight we're going to look at the topic of good power and bad power. See, there is such a thing as good power and bad power. In fact, um, some language theologians will talk about this at the conclusion, but theologians have used another term for this. Sometimes they've called it right-handed power and left-handed power. And good power and bad power is the thing that Jesus most clearly came to showcase to us about how God does things. Because if you remember, when Jesus preached, what they said is he's preaching the same scriptures everybody else, but he's doing it with power. Paul, when Paul went to speak, he said, I didn't come to you with enticing words, but I came to you with power. See, there's something about this idea of good power that does something different than bad power. So I'd like to start tonight where we should obviously start, with Lady Liberty. You see, Lady Liberty, her actual full name is Liberty Enlightening the World. That's the full name of the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty, the Statue of Liberty, I think would be way better if it wasn't in perspective. Um, and uh, But I still really like it. Um, so Lady Liberty was, uh, most of us know, a gift to France, but do most of us realize why? See, interestingly enough, um, uh, Lebolet gave it to us in 1886. Uh, the the, the uh, French Prime Minister at that time gave it to us in 1886, and he proposed that a great monument should be given to us at that time as a gift from France to the United States as a celebration of the Union's victory in the American Revolution, of course, but specifically... He gave it to us because of the abolition or the ending of slavery. Although you can't see Lady Liberty's hand clearly, what you would see if you could actually get close enough is that, in fact, she's standing among broken shackles and chains, and her right foot is raised clearly depicting her moving forward and away from oppression and slavery. People also suggest that the raised right leg is because she's leaning forward to the immigrants who are coming into our country. She's leaning into the oppressed. She's stepping forward to welcome them to come. American independence and the abolition of slavery, African Americans saw this as a very ironic gesture, because even though in 1886 uh, um, we had already abolished slavery, in 1863 we abolished slavery, interestingly enough, it would be another hundred years. Do you realize that in our country's history, the last slave to be legally given freedom was in 1962? 1962, the last slave in our country was set free. The reason is, if you are a slave, if you live under the boot of an oppressor, the oppressor determines what information you receive. So the plantation owner still would have not informed the slave that he had been set free legally. So interestingly enough, this icon of our country that represents two things. It represents breaking chains of freedom for those who had been bound, and it represents a welcoming of those who are fleeing oppression to come to a place of freedom. That's what this iconic image means. In fact, it became a symbol of immigration during the second half of the 19th century. Not that immigration is a hot topic at all now or anything. But then, in 
the 19th century, it was a big deal. In fact, it was all over the news. CNN, Fox, MSNBC back in the 19th century talked about it all the time, unlike right now. Uh, and so, well, hopefully a joke that you get now, but if not, maybe you'll get it later. Uh, the way that it worked was that this was something that in the Bay would be people who had immigrated from other countries, war-torn countries, disease-ridden countries. As they would travel, they would see this in the horizon, and it would be a beacon of light to them. In the beginning, there was something, and I mean beginning like Genesis. I mean like humanity, however that happened. There is something baked into our human nature that wants to liberate the oppressed. There is something baked into our DNA. We are wired with his image. And God is always on whose side? The oppressed. So there's something within us as human beings that desire to see this happen. And so on the Statue of Liberty today, we find this very clear depiction. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. So on our shores, this has represented since 1886, the idea that there was something happening, that liberation was happening, that freedom was happening, that something, there was a difference between good power and bad power, and good power was always going to be exercised on behalf of those that had none. Isn't it interesting that the statue, a woman crying for freedom, leaning towards the oppressed, fleeing their homes to come here to a land where women, women, excuse me, wouldn't be able to vote for another 60 years. Isn't it interesting that in fact in my lifetime, in my lifetime, 1982, we finally passed legislation in our country that women could no longer be fired for getting pregnant. And yet in 1886, we chose a statue of a woman to cry out and lean forward for the breaking of the bonds of oppression. In the last eight years, our country has fallen from 6th to 26th in gender equality within our economy, meaning that our countries, of our country's most homeless and impoverished, 68% are women. Two in eight women in our country live in poverty. And what we must remember is that we also have a high single mother rate, which means one in three single mothers live in poverty. And of the children who are living in poverty, 60% are living with single mothers. So they're in poverty based on that system. The average woman in the U.S. with the same education makes 80 cents on the dollar. And if you're a minority woman, you make 70 cents on the dollar. But in 1886, we chose the statue of a woman to say oppression has to go. So the reality of it is we have to understand that there is something baked into our humanity that says we don't want that. Because good power always lifts up. And so what happens is Dr. King says so perfectly that the moral art of humanity is long and slow, but it's always bent toward balance. The moral art of humanity is long and slow, but it's always going to be bent towards balance. So we live in a world where we have an obligation to understand that we're going to take three steps forward and then what? Three steps back just the way it works. We live in a human culture where the pendulum swings back and forth because people with power always want to give it away. See, that's the way, that's 
what this ICOM meant for us. So when our French brothers and sisters, our comrades at Revolution, decided that they wanted to give us something, isn't it interesting? They gave us something that technically we hadn't even fulfilled yet. It was a prophecy in the statue. It was baked in that we're better than them. It was baked in that even though in 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 uh, uh, 20 years prior to this, we had abolished slavery in our country, we hadn't really done it yet, but we were going to. It was baked in that this woman would be the one that would represent that, yet 100 years later and 150 years later, we're, we're still fighting so that women can have the same equality that men do. We're, it's baked into this thing that we can be better and do better, and that doesn't mean that we are um, denigrating who we are. We can honor who we are because, once again, the moral arc is long and slow. So we recognize and we hold with honor where we've come from and that we've moved forward, but we can acknowledge and celebrate that we still aren't there. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus says some really interesting things about power. In fact, Jesus seems to totally redefine how we get power. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem near Jerusalem during the reign of King Herod. After Jesus' birth, a group of spiritual priests from the east came to Jerusalem and inquired of the people, where is the child who was born king of the Jewish people? We observed his star rising in the sky. And we've come to bow before him or give him homage and worship. King Herod was shaken to the core when he heard this. And not only him, but all of Jerusalem was disturbed when they heard the news. So he called a meeting of the Jewish ruling priests and religious scholars, demanding that they would tell him where the promised Messiah was, which is prophesied to be born. And he will be born in Bethlehem, the land of Judah, for the prophecy of Micah that we've looked at. They told him, because the prophecies say to you, little Bethlehem, are not insignificant among the clans of Judah, for out of you will emerge the shepherd king of my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the spiritual priests from the east to ascertain the exact time when the star first appeared. And he told them, go to Bethlehem and carefully look there for the child. And when you found him, report him to me so that... I can go and bow down and worship him too. And so they left and went to Bethlehem. And suddenly the star came from the east and appeared. And amazed, they watched as it went ahead of them and stopped directly over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were so ecstatic that they shouted and celebrated with unrestrained joy. When they came to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They became overcome. Falling to the ground, they worshipped him. They opened the treasured boxes full of gifts and presented him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And afterward, they returned to their own country by another route because God had warned them in a dream not to go back there. There's some really cool stuff in here that we should probably talk about. So this evening, I'd like to talk to you about power. I feel that we're in a time that this is deeply important for something that you care about. Some of what we share tonight could sound political, but I humbly submit to you that it is not my intention to be political in the sense of party systems or voter ballots, but only in the sense that Jesus came to show us another way. And that way, we've identified this as the third way, because so many of us, we've grown up surrounded by systems and structures that we didn't even realize drove our culture. So when we talk about things that sound political, we make it fall into elephants and donkeys. And the reality check that our politics all work through the lens of a baby born in Bethlehem. So let's think about the text. And in Matthew, we find three distinct categories of people. We first find Herod, and then we find the Magi. And I'd like to clarify for you, in case you missed it, I'm sure you didn't, in the reading of the text, but what were these magi actually called? They were Eastern priests. The third group of people that you find, or the third person that you find or, or depiction is, is obviously Jesus, the baby. But we must remember, starting with Herod, that Herod is at that moment the king of the Jews. He is the one chosen to lead the people of God. He is in. I want to be really clear. Herod is the king of the Jews. 
know Herod as the bad guy. Because we know the rest of the story, right? But at that time, if we were to, if we were distinguishing this by the book of Romans and how we do things with elections, we would say that because he's the leader, he's God's chosen man. Right? I mean, he is, Israel is God's people. We're comfortable with that. We would believe that. This guy is the king of God's people. This guy is the one who stands on behalf of what is God's intent to do throughout the rest of the world. And I understand that he's not a good guy. And I understand that he's got problems. And I understand that he does bad stuff. But by all our standards, he's God's chosen man. Or is he? first thing we have to remember is, is God in control? I have a teaser. No. God has all power, but God isn't in control. If God was in control, we wouldn't need to go to the voting booth. If God was in control, he wouldn't have to be the president. Otherwise, our prayers are pointless. So what we have to understand is there's something bigger happening here. This idea of Herod is the definition of bad power. You see, what you have is somebody who is is within the systems and structures, somebody who is in. He's the leader of God's people. He's the leader of Israel. He is the king of the Jews. And yet there's this weird thing that happens because according to the scripture, he falls into fear. What is he afraid of? He's afraid because there's a prophecy about another king of the Jews. He is afraid because his power has become threatened by a baby. And so within that idea, what you actually find is that Herod represents in his structure bad power. What does bad power do? That's a great question, right? I never thought of this. So what bad power does is very simple. Bad power is power that comes on top of the oppressed and presses them down so that we can maintain and keep power. Good power is always power that comes underneath the oppressed and lifts them up, believing that a rising tide floats all boats. So Herod falls into that category. There's a second category that's really interesting that's here, and I, I think I can't wait so much of this is going to be so fun. I'm so excited. So uh, on, on Sunday, we'll talk more about this, but the idea of the Eastern priests that show up is fascinating to me because let me just give you a, a little bit of a different language for who these guys are. So these are Eastern priests. So these guys are Buddhists and Muslims by our definition. Buddhists and Muslims, like they practice, they, they, you know, they're part-time, they play in the intramural Muslim league, they're priests, like these guys are professional Muslims, these guys are the ones who tell other people how to be Muslim, these guys are the other, the ones that, these guys aren't the, the, the Buddhists who like go to yoga because it's kitschy and cool, these guys are the Buddhists who don't have clothes on and wrap themselves in that red towel and light themselves on fire in front of tanks. Those Muslims are those Buddhists. So this idea is fascinating because the idea that God is presenting is the positioning that the only ones that God spoke to to say that a son had been given that was going to change everything were the priests of another religion. So think about this. At this time, these are the ultimate outsiders. And those are the ones that God speaks to. And and as if it's not enough, I don't know, Linda, thank you for reminding me to tell you this. As if it's not enough, they're probably both, like they're Muslim and Buddhist. It, 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 it's maybe the pentecostal. 
So there, as if that's not enough, there are scholarships. You, if we want to use a modern day term, science. So let's just pick every category that Christians get offended by. Science, they, I bet you they believe in global warming. Revolution starts when I pick, God picks the furthest outside people he can find. So that's the way he does it. First, they are not in the religion of God's people. And to me, that's not offensive. We think we know what's true and beautiful, so we are the only ones who are in it. The people of Israel, it was in the book that they were the only ones that were in it. Were they the only ones that God spoke to, or were they the only ones interested in visiting the cave? Maybe God spoke to some of the religious leaders in Israel. Maybe he spoke to Nicodemus, who Jesus calls the great religious leader of the day. Maybe they spoke to, uh, maybe he spoke to some of the people that took Paul. Maybe he spoke to, to many different So the beauty is they converted. So that's really why God wanted to do it, because he was trying to show us all along that if you want to follow Jesus and if you want to worship him, the first thing you have to do is say the sinner's prayer. And then denounce your other religion. But we, because God spoke, they worshiped. overjoyed at this star and are excited about the idea of how this is supposed to work. And then you have God, Jesus, the third category that's there. I thought uh, it would be interesting because when you look in this idea, it is the juxtaposition between good power and bad power. In fact, you have in all of the powerful prophecies about governments being upon Jesus' shoulder, I'd like to remind you that at that point he weighed seven pounds and six ounces
if not the primary theme of the entire Bible is the pursuit of power. If we're honest, you don't even have to look hard to see it. And like so many other things, once you've seen it, you see it everywhere. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. From Genesis to Revelation, God is always found with those oppressed and outcast. With those who have the boot of empire on their neck. And I've heard it said, as soon as you draw a line to exclude people, Jesus goes to the other side of that line with them and invites you to join him there. Because that's how he does things. However, if we watch the news, read social media, or observe the relationship between husbands and wives or parents and children, you'll find that this has not been well addressed for people. Only very gradually does someone come into the awareness of the selfless use of power, the sharing of power, or even the benevolent use of power. Any critique of power is so counterintuitive that most of Christian history itself has largely avoided it or even shored itself up to protect the power system. Within most of our religious history, we have lent what power we have, saying that we speak on behalf of the voice of God, to the power system of the world so they can accomplish their agenda. And you don't even have to look hard to find this. Literally every show on the History Channel is about it. And if you don't think that's that's fair, well, I'm sorry. If you want fair, it shows up in July. But it's true. The, the truth is the power systems are always, why? Because the most powerful endorsement you can get is power. So what has happened since the beginning of time, there's always been this thing of if God says it's okay, we can go do it. And so uh, you know, there's this really interesting story about how uh, uh, when we first came to America, um, uh, that we were here, that was kind of a rock story. And there was at some point we decided that um, there wasn't enough food for us and the Native Americans in that area. Let me be clear. There was enough food for them that they had raised. But we were not able to raise enough for ourselves without taking theirs. And because we were all Christian, God-loving people, what they did is they went to the pastor. And they asked the reverend famously um, if it was okay for us to go island an entire race of people in that area, entire tribe of people. And so um, the pastor stayed up all night and searched the scriptures, and he said that he found that if you use uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12, where God told uh, Israel to go annihilate the Amalekites because they were unholy, that, that it was okay for us to go annihilate this holy, unholy, savage people. So they used scripture and the voice of God to go wipe it out, but they never would have went without God's endorsement. We've been doing this since the beginning. And so I'd like to point out, if you don't mind, just a little bit of a history lesson. So Jesus comes on the scene, right? Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus is a real person. He he was uh, 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 born to Mary, and obviously um, we talk about what she means and the revolutionary that she is. And Jesus, it, it makes perfect sense why they thought Jesus would be a power guy. Because they thought the Messiah was going to come and he was going to vindicate Israel. Judah Maccabee had already done that. Um, there had already there'd always been these guys that came on the scene as Israel and helped liberate them. In fact, Israel as a people, this little bitty strip of land in the Middle East, had been oppressed by everybody that could oppress them. And so the idea of power that was baked into Israel, baked into the Jewish people, was the idea of power that is violent and is power that you exercise and you overthrow with might. And if God's on your side, let's get it done. 
they had read the same Bible stories we've read. They've read the story of Jericho. They've been told the story of Jericho. They've heard all of these incredible stories where David would go out and slay 2,000 men and his sword would cling to his hand because he had killed so many men and God was on his side because David was a man after God's own heart. Interestingly enough, I, I, I wonder if we feel so much about God being on David's side whenever he was stoning Uriah. But that's another point altogether. So Israel had a history of having power stuff. In 17, or excuse me, 722, the Assyrians came in and occupied and overthrew Israel. Itty bitty tiny nation. In 597, the Babylonians came in and overthrew and occupied, destroyed Israel. In 538, the Persians came. Then in 332, the Greeks came. And then 198, the Seleucids came. And then finally in 61 BC, the Romans came. This is just before Jesus. Can you imagine what it would be like for in our country to have been overthrown closest thing we have in Hawaii is Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And maybe I'm missing something in my mind, but if I'm missing something, closest thing we have since the revolution or the establishment of our country. And yet you do realize that the Babylonian exile lasted 400 years. The exile, it's, there's a really cool study, this is for another day where Jeannie and I uh, are going to teach about this kind of thing. But it's really cool because you actually find that between Abraham and David, there were 14 centuries. Between David and the Babylonian uh, um, uh, captivity, there were 14 centuries. Between the Babylonian captivity and Jesus, there were 14 centuries. In fact, also, you find that the exile uh, where they were slaves in Egypt, 430 years. Do you know how long they were? it was from the time that they began to cry out and were liberated from Babylon until Jesus came? 430 years. So these people, this is years and years and years and years and years of this. They had a very clear uh, idea of what power looked like, and it usually came with chariots. So Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus begins to model something entirely differently. So when we see this, we only then can slowly begin to understand through the model of what Jesus showed as servant leadership. Jesus said in the book of John, when, I, when he finally realized the fullness of God and what, that God had put all things into his hands, he did what? Grabbed his disciples. When Jesus chose to speak about himself, the term that he chose to identify with was his humanity over his deity. Why? Because he was, he was the one that typified this. Yet for us, it's very difficult. Only very gradually can we come into this. I believe this is one reason that the church is so deeply important. One of its primary jobs is to demonstrate how we deal with those who have nothing to give us. Churches should be full of relationships with people that don't give us more influence, more money, or more power. This is countercultural in almost every system around us. Every idea of networking is about knowing people so that those connections will produce more influence to get us something. We network, why? So I can know more people to have more influence so it will pay off in the end. It's not about that. And so what you actually find here is that Paul begins to say some really interesting things, like in Corinthians when he says it's precisely the parts of the body that are weakest that do the most influence. Ken Wilber speaks of this and calls it gross hierarchy. 
The intent is that these hierarchies are only as healthy as they are able to protect the needy, the neglected, or those needed to save the state and save the nation. Our hierarchies are only as healthy as they are able to protect those who are needy. He insists, and I agree, that power and hierarchy are not inherently bad, but they are incredibly dangerous for those who reject the contemplative way of humility and service of others. And it actually becomes dangerous for the very ones who have power. So Jesus modeled this servant leadership. Jesus modeled this practice where we are supposed to be serving those that have nothing on their own. And what happens is Jesus then comes as the ultimate example of good power. If you notice, unlike any of the other leaders in the Bible, maybe with the exception of Moses and Joseph, Jesus rejects titles or anything that would resemble an earthly kingdom. He's the only one in the Bible. Maybe you could argue that Moses and Joseph were this way. Moses was called the leading man in all the earth, right? So he's the leading and the runner. But that he rejected everything that power should give him. He rejected everything that that power that you work for should afford you. It was out to cars upside down completely. It was not, what can I get from this? It was, I have more power, so how can I give more? And so Jesus comes reminding us that God said to Samuel, I never wanted a king in the first place. So Jesus comes not as a king that leads an army, but as a servant that fosters it. Why then do we protect the monarch military model and we project it back to God? We even demonstrate that in our churches. How many churches have you heard of where Things fall apart because of abuse of power or family members. And we feel like that we can do that in some godly way. We feel like that that hierarchy authority is some godly thing. And it's not. And then we project it back onto God and say, because that's how God is. And God is at the head. And then I'm ben- I'm here. And I speak on behalf of God. And I'm this and I'm that. The reality of it is, if you can't identify the leader of a group by the person with the cow, they're not a leader. If they're not the person who will, at, at any given opportunity, takes the cow to serve, they're not a leader. They're a boss at best. And so what we have to recognize is God never set up these patriarchal structures of church to endorse this military model that we've been put somehow pulled out of the world and put into church. So we have all these weird authority systems that say you have to submit to authority, do this and do this and do this. And I'm not saying that you don't, but if you actually read the scripture, it says you submit yourself one to another. see things realistically. So we think without submission to authority, there is rebellion. There is abuse. So we pull really, really hard on that whole thing. It's all happening. Rebellion as the sin of the witchcraft. Everybody knows that. And we hang everything on it. What I'm telling you is that is a nail that was never intended to hold what we've put up. And so we base things upon this that were never intended. And I would venture to say, let me just go, let me just go back one more time quickly and remind us, Jesus didn't demonstrate that hierarchy. I don't care if David did. Jesus didn't. And David is not my So while we list off all the all the stuff that David did, you might be like, well, he had a king and all this stuff. I really don't care. 
that Jesus said, Jesus found somebody who was operating outside of the authority structure of Jesus and the disciples, and the disciples tried to shut him down. This is what the church would do. Jesus said, don't you know, if they're not against us, they're for us. Jesus took the man who was delivered from being possessed by demons in the garden east and didn't tell him, if you really want to have authority, you better learn to submit to me. He said, hey, why don't you stay here and start a church? So when we look at this, we have to understand this is an illusion that one person can be in charge of another person. It is an illusion. That has never been the intent of God. All we can do is externally influence or enforce behavior. Now, sometimes this might be necessary because children, um, we, we obviously recognize that there has to be some type of, of where you're leading them, you're telling what, them what to do, you're trying to influence them correctly. I understand that. But real maturity is found in the fruit of the Spirit being self-control, never other control. If you would like me to walk out that example all the way, yes, your six-year-old child, you need to tell them what to do, and you need to mandate that behavior. But try to do that to your 28-year-old. So why do we think that mature power structures should look that way? Because we've got a Saul model, not a Jesus model. And so what Jesus actually says is that reason works in this uh, uh, this other thing where Jesus works with the disciples and he frees them out. I mean, think about what it looks like for a for Jesus. How does Jesus use power? He deals with the disciples who were by all of our standards not smart enough to clean the church and take up the offering. Either one of those things is not good. But but it you know the, the people that stand up front and they just kind of do this and, and then you don't even you don't even let that guy pray for the offering because he's not going to be able to get and then he gives over to, to the other person right like that idea Jesus takes the guys who wouldn't qualify for that like the entry level church guy and sends them out to heal the sick raise the dead and cast out devils and then when they mess it up he says don't worry. How about we send you out again this time more? That's the Jesus model. So where in the world have we got this idea? And so what we have to recognize is this diminutive power or bad power is power that we obtain through control and manipulation. And any power that you obtain through control and manipulation, you must retain through control and manipulation. Any power you get by controlling or manipulating somebody else, you better, you have to keep it by the same. And so what Jesus came to do is to liberate us from these systems. He came as a helpless baby having no ability to influence or manipulate anybody. And on his shoulders it was all laid. So I believe the primary reason for our leaning into this bad power methods are simple. Fear and patience. Because by controlling somebody, I'm able to maintain the status quo of that relationship. Maybe that relationship is that I control a, a, a loved one or a friend or even people within the church. I am able to control them because I'm afraid that things could get wild. Have you ever had or heard stories um, where, where pastors are afraid of what happens when people leave and start Have you ever had to not tell people uh, the books you might be reading or that you now subscribe to the Morning Star Journal in 1984 because you're afraid that you might get a meeting with the pastor? Have you ever had to, um, in some way, not let people know what type of worship music you listen to or what type of things God is doing in your life because you're afraid it might get to the pastor? And what's going to happen is thinking people are dangerous people, so they come shut it down because the idea is you can't do that because I can't control it. And so fear that the status quo is being violated will cause that to be threatened. The second thing is impatience because the reality of it is 
if we're honest, if we are honest, the way this is supposed to work is that patience, uh, impatience, is this thing that says, I can get them to where I think they need to be quicker if they just do what I want them to do. It can get things done more quickly. I would agree with that. But as someone once said, the way of God is longer, but it always results in deep, sustained change. The rest of us are content if we just do what they want. I have friends that have children that are going through children's ministry. That the rest of us are content to just rearrange the desk chairs on the rearrange the deck chairs, but the thing's still going down because it's not sustainable in that way. But the change that God does is through long-suffering. The change that God does is through self-control. It is the change that doesn't enforce anything on anybody else because it recognizes that real change is deep and it's long, and in that there is Most of us don't want to admit is that those in this picture that God is found with are those that from an outward appearance are powerless. Think about it. God chose for his people the group through which the entire earth would be blessed, a small, insignificant group that would go on to be enslaved, oppressed, exiled, and generally discounted by every superpower in the world to come. And God chose them. Which he confused, and he was get this out here, was confused. So the word of God comes to Moses at the Red Sea and says this don't fear, don't fight, just wait and see. Doesn't that just sound like God? Don't fear, don't fight, just wait and see. The reality is, even though we don't want to admit it, here's what what you'll do if I get mean with it and you got this. Though we don't want to admit it, God is humble and submits to our choices, desires, and humanity. God submits to us. And if you don't believe me, that's totally okay. But let me ask you this. So, do we? whose image are we created in? God. So if we're created in God's image and we're supposed to show, take that forward, uh, the golden rule says do unto others what you would have them do unto you. So wouldn't it be likely to say that the thing that God wants us to be, he already is? So wouldn't it make sense if the way this is supposed to work, that if God wants us to be humble, that the first thing God is going to be is? Wouldn't it make sense that if God wants us to submit ourselves one to another, that the first thing he's going to do is he's going to choose humanity, frail, broken, messed up, Jerry Springer watching humanity, and then submit to us. If you don't believe me, read the creation story and explain to me why God allows creation Gentleman, which I have no idea why the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. Anyway, you 
It's just a weird, the whole idea of it's just weird. But he's a gentleman, so apparently the Holy Spirit opens the car door for you and, and uh, doesn't let you pay for dinner. Chivalry's not dead, say it, the Holy Spirit. He looks something like a mid-50s George Clooney, Richard Gere. And so we're, I, I guess that makes us Julia Roberts in the situation. But somehow, some way, we've determined it. And in our own really hokey, messed up language, we're right. because I think it opens the door for all this other messed up stuff. But what I do think we're right about is he is so interested in our choice. He's so interested in our decisions. He's so interested in us being free moral agents. And he said that, and he said that, and he said that. And then I say something like, God forbid, to us, and I get the heresy card thrown at me. We've been saying this all along. We've just been saying this based on the fact that we don't want God to have to take the rap when I forget to pay the rent. So we're free moral agents. My decision counts. And so when I really mess things up, then what? It's not God's fault. But then when somebody flies planes into a tower, God's in control. We've got issues with this. So what I would like to suggest is that God has, since the beginning, decided to climb inside of our humanity, which is beauty, and paint something gorgeous. So simply put, God, against all expectation, is in control. And good power is always about reaching to those with less power and lifting them up. Bad power is always about reaching to those with less power and pressing them down. Isn't this what God said? Good power will always be found in mutual submission. And if you don't believe me, think about the good power of the Spirit that we've experienced. Isn't it always defined by God submitting or giving God's self to us and us submitting and giving ourself to God? Our relationship with God is mutual submission and acceptance. Most good writers tip their hand at what's really going on in the life of that person. And I believe the Bible is no different. What does the last chapter of the Bible say? If you could actually say the first and the last chapter, we get the whole stuff. But the last chapter shows us something incredible. It's an incredible picture of a garden fully restored. Heaven flourishing on earth. And the bride fully prepared for her husband. What that means is that the story of the Bible, the story of God, that Jesus came as the catalyst to reset and restore, is not about some place else called heaven or about someone else who is at a distance called God. Rather, here is where the action is. Earth is where it started. Earth is where it so why in the world has he put God in some distant place and heaven in some distant place and said that's the reward? The end of the book tells us what the whole thing is about. You want to know what the plot is? At the end of the book, the thing that was at the beginning of the book happening here. So how does God do that? It's an incredible idea. Here is where the action is. It's about this place and the source of it all becoming one with all of it again. It's about, I'll say that again. It's about this place and the source of it all becoming one with all of it again. And how does God get this done? By submitting to us and demonstrating good power. Because chiefly, the way God is going to restore the whole thing is by engaging us in loving relationship in which we demonstrate his compassion, his forgiveness, peace, and restoration. In fact, Luther, the great reformer, negatus the Protestant, uh, the great reformer even gave language to this, calling it, and I mentioned this at the beginning, there's good power and bad power, and right now the power must be with him. Luther said good power must be with him. Now the reason
reason Luther said that less than good powders isn't the point, and I'm not getting on that, but the reason he said good powders, less than good powders, is because right always signifies strength. In fact, when God revealed Jesus, it said he is going to extend his right arm to us. It speaks of power, it speaks of authority, it speaks of might, the ability to get stuff done. So what Luther said is that good power, godly power, in the submission of God's self to us is always left-handed power. This is really interesting. The left-handed or good power is guided by the more intuitive, open-minded, imaginative right side of the brain. Interestingly enough, when when you're operating in left-handed power, the left side of your brain, the brain that thinks about logic, and that thinks about pragmatism, and that thinks about plausibility, is almost completely shut off. The, the, the right side of the brain that, that functions with left-handed power is the side of the brain that thinks imaginatively and creatively, and thinks about how to forgive, and thinks about how to make the best of others. And that's the kind of power that Luther was talking about that God uses. So interestingly, this is how God does things. This power shows itself in the helpless baby Jesus. It shows itself in the compassionate, healing Jesus. And it is fully demonstrated in the nonviolent, forgiving Mary. We often want to ignore in this age of women above all else that Jesus' plan was about a child. Presumably by all standards, worthy. Maybe our women above all culture causes us to back away from giving, pouring ourselves out, dying, becoming seed, becoming broken bread and wine poured out to one another. What I'm suggesting to you is this, that we've never lived, that I can think of, in an age where more people were talking about the importance of women. In fact, our entire political structure right now, it's not based on how do we serve the people best or what can go forward. It's about winning. How do we win? And when I have power, I'm going to exercise that power, not because I think it's best. In fact, it can directly contradict what I think is best and what I've said is best. But when I have power, if the person that I'm in opposition to on the other side of the aisle wants to get something done, it's my job to make sure that they don't win. In fact, if I have one more person, if you said this, I should just give you an advance. If I have one more person tell me that the problem with our world today is participation trophies, I'm going to hit them with a hymnal. Because the first thing I'd like to remind you is, I had participation trophies. It's not new. I know what we try to say is it's something that just happens with these millennials and these kids, and they don't know how to work because they just get a participation trophy. That is, I'll use the Hebrew word, hooey. That's not real life. And so the truth of it is, that's not reality. And we have so positioned in our culture that we have to win above all else that that has driven us to the point where it's all about my power because that power is all about winning because that power won't let you forgive because I can't let them go. That power won't let you give to somebody who's on the street because they should just go get a job and I work hard for them. That power doesn't root for somebody who keeps falling off the wagon back into alcohol addiction or drug addiction or pornography because if they were just as as had as much self-control as I have and discipline as I have, then anybody could be where I, I am. They need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. Winning is all about bad power. And so what it actually is when Jesus is hanging on the cross to everyone there Not forget how it 
Second, because if you do this, the gift that we have in Jeremiah, he spoke about giving and pouring without dying, becoming a seed that goes into the ground and being bread of the forget that by the changes of every regeneration, that giving is compounded because we're not losing by giving our lives to God. And so he sees the baby, but he sees the emptiness of life proclaiming the birth, proclaiming the Christ, proclaiming, taking him to the other side of the sea of Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.